I had someone the other day, a caregiver, and he kept looking at his watch and saying, I'm so sorry I'm taking up so much of your time. Now, we had an appointment, mm-hmm. so I kept saying, don't worry, like, we have the hour appointment. So every 10 minutes, he would say, I'm taking up, you know, I must be taking up time. Mm-hmm. And many times people say these kind of things because they're scared to talk about these things. They're dreading having these conversations, even though they know it would help them. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. Where we talk about aging well. It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. In the United States, cancer is the second leading cause of death, and it's not only emotionally and physically devastating, but the treatment process can be confusing and frustrating at a time when you're not equipped to cope with the challenges of everyday life. That's where licensed clinical social worker Jennifer Schussheim comes in. Jennifer is an oncology social worker, meaning her professional life is dedicated to supporting cancer patients and their caregivers. Jennifer is one of those low-profile but extremely important pieces of the healthcare puzzle, delivering person-centered care outside the operating room. She joins us in the studio today to tell us how she supports cancer patients and their caregivers, why she does this work, and what she's learned along the way that might help you. Jennifer Schussheim, welcome to the AgeWise Podcast. Thank you for having me today. Let's set the stage for folks by telling us a little bit about your background. I grew up here in South Florida, Boca Raton, Florida, to be exact. Grew up here with my father as a surgeon and my mother as a social worker, so I kind of followed in her footsteps. Most of my family members are in the healthcare or helping fields, Uh Um, so I grew up in that kind of uh, environment where helping people and volunteering was a big deal and uh, something that I've always wanted to be involved in. Do you have siblings? I do. I have two brothers. Mm-hmm. They're both lawyers, but they both have told me that they got into law to help people. So I thought that was an interesting side huh. of wanting to be a lawyer. And you're the oldest, right? Yes, I am the eldest. You're the oldest. Okay. So you mentioned before off recorder that your grandfather had moved in with your parents. And I wonder if you can share a little bit about that. Yes, actually, my grandmother had passed away of dementia. She had slowly gotten worse over time, and they were lucky enough to have invested in long-term health care, which I always suggest to my patients um, and actually my patients' children because oftentimes they are too old to have had that. Mm -hmm. And so they had the 24-hour care at home when my grandmother was sick. And uh, after she passed away, my parents uh, had decided to have my grandfather, who at that time was 89 years old, move in with them. So my grandfather never went back to my grandmother and grandfather's house after uh, she had passed away. Uh huh. Did he stay in the house at all after she died? Nope, he never went back. Uh, we happened to be of the Jewish faith, and right after Shiva, my parents asked him, do you want to stay here? And he said, yes. That was right after Hurricane Sandy. Okay. I was living in New York at the time, and my apartment got flooded. So I came down here and spent a couple weeks in Florida and spent some time watching my grandfather move in to my parents' house. Huh. Did your parents talk to you, or do you think they thought about the consequences of him moving in? Did, was it a natural thing for him? Because that's a big deal, and maybe they didn't realize what they were getting into. 
My parents didn't talk to me about what that discussion looked like between my mother and father, mm -hmm. but I think it was easy for them to say, who knows how long my grandfather would have left at mm -hmm. 89 years old, and that it was important for them to feel that my grandfather was comfortable, had people around him who he trusted and loved, mm -hmm. and that uh, they knew that they could take the best care of him, um, and that he was comfortable in my parents' home. And they were also lucky and fortunate enough, and again, since my grandparents had this long-term care, right. that's, that's a theme here, um, <laughs> that he was able to have that care while in my parents' home. Uh-huh. You and your brothers were out of the house already by then, right? Yes, but yeah. both my brothers lived down here, so uh -huh. they were frequently in the home, and I called very frequently yeah. Um, yeah. and would even FaceTime with my grandfather. Right. So. I'm, I'm putting that, I'm asking in terms of the the number of people under the roof. Right. Really. No, it Not was just, care. right, it was yeah. just my parents and uh -huh. my grandfather. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. And so he was 89 when he moved in, and how long did he live after that? Exactly one year after my grandmother died. So it was one full year. Um, he lived till 90 and two months, three months. So we had a 90th birthday party for him. And we called him the king because he was the king of the house for that whole year. <laughs> um, you know, he spent most of the time in his lounge chair there. They have great chairs for people who, when they're getting older, and I do recommend this a lot for my patients, there are these recliners, but the recliners go all the way back and then come all the way up so people can stand. And that's wonderful for people who are struggling with standing up um, and standing up into the rocker. So it's really helpful. Is that something that Medicare will pay for? I am unsure of that answer, but I will look <laughs> into it and get back to you. I just mentioned it, you know, okay. to people if they're looking for different recliners uh -huh. for their elderly parents or uh -huh. their significant others, that those are the kind of things that do exist. Okay, we're going to put that in the show notes for yes. folks. I'll get the answer to that before this goes to air. Okay. So how have you experienced death in your family? Well, I will say to begin, and I guess a lot of people my age, um, I am in my 30s, um, have experienced the death of their grandparents. I am lucky to have known three out of the four of my grandparents. My dad's father passed away when I was three years old. I have vague memories of him, but I'm lucky that my father and my uncle are still able to give me very nice stories about my grandfather and some similarities that I have with him. Uh -huh. And actually, my grandmother gave me experience of knowing about cancer. My grandmother died when I was 18 years old from CLL. And, what is um, CLL? It's a type of leukemia, okay. lymphoma, okay. and she passed when I was 18. And that's when I first saw someone going through chemotherapy and needing a wig and dealing with some side effects of chemotherapy. And then, obviously, my other two grandparents died in 2012 and 2013. Uh -huh. And then more recently, my cousin and my uncle both died of different types of cancer. And so I've had that experience within my family, and I think... Since more recently, the passing of my family members, I've also been in this field, and it's given me a very different perspective than when my other family members have passed. Uh-huh. And have you had end-of-life conversations with your parents? I have. I think they probably found it. I don't know how they found it, but I think it's been interesting for them to hear me bring it up, you know, as their child to bring it up. Yeah. But I've been very clear with them that it's important to have them with each other, which they've told me they've had many times before, as my dad is a physician and they've dealt with a lot of death in the family as well as with mm. their friends for different reasons, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I've talked to them about do not resuscitate, DNR, mm -hmm. um, what they would want. Mm -hmm. And they have shared with me that depending on how old they are, and mm -hmm. what's happened with them. 
they are 65 years old Mm -hmm. and we've talked about you know having plots in the cemetery Mm -hmm. and these kind of things are very important and I do talk to my patients about that as well so I'm very open about this with my family and my friends and you know I don't think it matters how old you are to at least think about those kind of things because you never know what's going to happen yeah so I'd like to have people understand how you got to where you are now in terms of the work that you're doing I know that you lived in New York for a while Mm -hmm. so if you could talk about the work that you did in New York you got your education there as well is that right I actually I went to University of Pennsylvania for my undergraduate degree in psychology and sociology and after school I wasn't 100 percent sure what I wanted to do for graduate school although I knew I wanted to go back to school Mm -hmm. and I ended up doing pharmaceutical sales and when I did pharmaceutical sales I wanted to be specific about what kind of things I wanted to do within that and I ended up doing things in terms of mental health because I was always interested in working with patients in general. And I think mental health is critical, even with cancer patients, right, to keep in mind their positive attitude. And people get depressed all the time when they have any type of illness, right, Mm -hmm. physical illness. And so I would teach primary care providers how to identify different uh, mental health illnesses. And then I would also work with psychiatrists on gathering more information on the type of patients that they had and you know, talking to them about what type of medications that they would use for different types of symptoms. And then I knew I wanted to be closer to the patient, meaning seeing the patients myself rather than talking to the practitioners who would see the patient. Wait, if I can stop you a minute. Were you doing pharmaceutical sales? Yes. Okay. But but while I was doing pharmaceutical sales, a lot of it included education, you know, within it. And then I decided to go back to school. So while I was working for this pharmaceutical company, I went back to NYU for social work school. Mm -hmm. And I did evening school at NYU. You. Working and, during the day? Yes. And then I decided I want to go full-time at NYU, and I worked part-time at a psychiatrist's office, and I also worked at a few different places that I, allowed me to utilize uh, those social work skills. Mm-hmm. And you worked after grad school in New York, is that right? Yes, yeah. I worked at a hospital inpatient, and that's actually where I became passionate about oncology, in a hospital that was a public hospital in New York, and anyone who's been to New York City knows that the public hospital system is very interesting. <laughs> that's very diplomatic. <laughs> I, I'm trying to be a little diplomatic about it, but I would have patients who had a lot of comorbid disorders, mm. everything from cancer and you know mental health issues, along with things like homelessness Mm. and or had no insurance and Mm -hmm. so we'd have to work through a lot of those things to make sure they had the care they needed. Uh Uh-huh and how long did you do that? I did that for a couple years. And then you came back down here? Yeah um, to be closer to my family I think you know after my grandparents passed away and I noticed that all of my family moved down here and Uh I started having nieces and nephews, I felt that it was important to be closer to them. Uh You realize the short life we all live. Especially when you're in the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So what is it about this population that interests you, cancer patients in particular? I think what happens is we all get so caught up in the medical part of things and we don't realize how important it is to look at the whole person. Mm. And the person needs all this extra support beyond their medical needs, right? There's so Mm. much else going on with someone, whether it's family dynamics or emotional needs or even those practical needs like financial needs or transportation to treatment. You know, if a family member is working and they're not available to take you to treatment in the middle of the day, how do they get there? Mm. You know, if they're at an assisted living facility that does not provide transportation, how Mm -hmm. do we go about this? Right. There are so many different aspects to care that don't include chemotherapy or radiation. 
right. or surgery. And I think that people are lost sometimes and they don't know where to go. And having a social worker that's equipped with resources and able to give the emotional support with experience, there's a role there for uh -huh. me. So if you could take us through a typical, if there is such a thing, assessment, planning, implementation, the process. Let's say you have a patient. How does that work? I would say there is no typical thing. Um, <laughs> but I would say in the work that I do at the particular hospital that I work at, I receive referrals from all over the place. Mm -hmm. I receive referrals from the radiation department, from nurses that are working with patients in different areas. I receive referrals from the surgeons. I receive referrals from certain paperwork, different administrators who see patients in the waiting room who are clearly struggling. Mm -hmm. I see caregivers who are asking for help. I have flyers out everywhere for support groups. So sometimes mm -hmm. people ask, who's facilitating the support group? Can I talk to them? So depending on who is asking to speak to me or who is referred to me, usually I see the patient or the caregiver. And I, as a social worker, the first thing you learn in school is meet the patient where they're at. And that's critical because you don't know where they're at when you first meet them. And uh -huh. so you start by asking them, what brings you here today? or so-and-so told me that you wanted to speak to me. How can I help you? You know, there's something about customer service in there, right? <laughs> right. It sounds like that, but in essence, there's something yeah. more to it, of course, right. right? You see their body language. You see, you know, sometimes I have people leaning really towards me and very close to me, and you can tell mm -hmm. they're extremely anxious. Or mm -hmm. I have people lying back and start crying before they even start talking. Mm -hmm. um, you can see people shaking. You know, you look at the body language mm -hmm. and you also hear their tone in their voice. Um, so it's that and it's also what they say, of course. Mm -hmm. I had someone the other day, you know, a caregiver, and males are very different than females mm -hmm. um, in how they respond. And he kept looking at his watch and saying, I'm so sorry I'm taking up so much of your time. Now, we had an appointment mm -hmm. and I give 45 minutes to an hour for people. Mm -hmm. So I kept saying, don't worry, like, we have the hour appointment. So every 10 minutes, he would say, I'm taking up too much, you know, I must be taking up time. Mm -hmm. And many times people say mm -hmm. these kind of things because they're scared to talk about these things. Uh -huh. They're dreading having these conversations, even though they know it would help them. Uh -huh. wow. And this particular man, his wife is dying. Uh -huh. She's on hospice. And he is having trouble talking about end of life. And that's a big discussion that I have with majority of patients and caregivers. Uh huh. So what did you say to this man? Well, besides me telling him that we have an hour, don't worry about it. Uh -huh. And, you know, some people say, I'm sorry to bother you. Again, I bring them in because I'm here to help. And this hour is for you. They sometimes say, what do you want me to talk about? And I mm -hmm. say, I want you to talk about whatever you want to talk about. Mm -hmm. Even if we sit here in silence, that's okay. And often I am sitting in silence with people. I let them just breathe and give them that silence. And that's something that's hard for people to sit with. Even, yeah. you know, therapists sometimes can't sit with silence. And that's something that over time I've learned how to do. And so, you know, with, with this man in particular, it took him a little while to really open up and say, you know, I don't know what I'm going to do without her. That's a very interesting question. And I did say, you know, we're talking about what you're doing with her now, but what happens afterward? It's hard for me to ask those questions, too. I can imagine. And so he's really been contemplating that the last two sessions we had. And that's a really hard discussion. Will you see this gentleman after his wife passes as well? So I always offer that. And I tell him I'll see him through however long he needs to be seen. I have someone else who I saw him and his wife a couple times. And then she passed. And I saw him once before she passed without her because she was in hospice. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen him twice after she passed 
Then he didn't see me for a month, and now he called me again. So I go again, meet them where they're at. If he doesn't want to come back ever, that's Mm -hmm. okay. If he wants to wait until he feels it's necessary to come back, then he can do that. I really just want to do what's best for them or what they think is best for themselves. You know, not pushing them, even though I know it would be helpful for them to have that support. Mm-hmm. So just to remind and clarify for listeners, you're working at a hospital yes. now. and Outpatient. Outpatient. And are there any other social workers at this hospital? No, okay. I'm the only one. And is that unusual? Yes, for- very unusual. Has there ever been a time when there's been more than just you? No. Now, why is that? What do you think? I think the healthcare system is having some trouble in general, right? I mean, we yeah. all see it. We all feel it, huh. right? Not just at our hospital, right? Sure. Just in general. I think oncology in general in all hospitals are different. You know, oncology programs vary from hospital to hospital. And I think sometimes our jobs are underappreciated. Actually, most of the time, social workers' jobs are Mm underappreciated. And even if patients are saying how much benefit they get out of it, that doesn't mean that administration ever (laughs) believes that Mm -hmm. that, uh, there's benefit, right? Mm -hmm. Unless... You know, oftentimes it takes someone in administration or higher up to have a family member or themselves to have an experience where they have someone who has cancer and has a good experience with a social worker. And that's unfortunate. Yeah. So what sort of issues come up with caregivers in particular? You talked about the gentleman and his wife, but are there other issues that come up over and over with caregivers? Yes. Because I know you work with a lot of caregivers. Yes. Well, a main thing that I talk to caregivers about, and caregivers come in all different shapes and sizes. You know, there are caregivers' children, right? You know, adult children and younger children. Right. But adult children caring for their elderly parents. Mm -hmm. There are significant others, of course. Mm -hmm. And then I also see siblings, you know, adult siblings, because a lot of times their adult children live in different states. Or the patient is alone and their adult children... They have a power of attorney, but they're out of state. So Mm -hmm. I had a patient who's in a nursing home and there's no one down here. And so they have to go through the children, but the children are out of state. And so it's Uh very complicated, right? And so I have to talk to the children over the phone. So technically they're not caregivers in that they're not physically here, Mm -hmm. but they're caregiver because they're a child. Mm -hmm. You know, there's varied types of caregivers out there, Mm -hmm. right? So the Mm -hmm. main type of caregiver I do see are significant others. And a lot of them are older, but I do have a lot of younger patients. And, you know, we can start with the younger patients because that's probably the hardest because the Uh younger patients I have in their 30s, early 40s, they're struggling because they have young children. And those who have young children struggle with, how do I talk to my kids? What do I say to them? Let's say they have a four-year-old and a 10-year-old. Well, you approach the four-year-old very differently than you approach a 10-year-old. Sure. A 10-year-old understands what's going on, and you have to talk to the 10-year-olds pretty clearly because they're going to know. You lose your hair, they're going to know. You're secretive and talking behind their back, but they see something's going on. Mm-hmm. So you have to be very direct with the 10-year-old and tell them what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to give gory details, but you have to say, you know, mom has been diagnosed with something called cancer. She's going to be okay, but she's going to be sick. And this is how we can help her, you know, letting her sleep or giving her juice or, you know, letting her be when she needs to be, whatever it is that's going to happen. But you have to be very clear with someone that's like 10 years old or a teenager. Mm -hmm. With a four-year-old, you know, you just have to be gentle and allow the conversation to be had Mm -hmm. if it needs to be had. 
Mm-hmm. And then there's dealing with, I'm just giving an example with a, a female patient, right? So then mm-hmm. you're dealing with the husband's struggle. The husband's used to going to work and coming home and doing, you know, helping out with the kids. But if the wife works, but then comes home and does dinner and goes food shopping and doing these things, now the husband's taking over a lot of those jobs and a lot of those roles. So there's a role shift in the family. Mm-hmm. And that can be very tough for a family unit. And then the husband struggles. He's not usually emotional. So now he's getting emotional. How does he deal with his own emotions and support his wife? So these are the things that we talk about. And I try to help them work through this. Mm-hmm. I give assistance with coping mechanisms, try to help them access coping mechanisms they've used in the past for different issues they've had in the past. So that's often things that we talk about is, oh, well, when there's been adverse events in your life, what's helped you before? Because that's the Mm -hmm. easiest thing to go back to. Oh, I used to work out a lot. Now, since I've had kids, we haven't done that as much. Or we used to go on walks and I don't really do that because such and such. So Mm -hmm. let's try to get back to that, just Mm -hmm. as an example, right? Right. So for people who are listening to this who might be in a situation like that or another, a similar situation, what can you say to them? And I recognize every situation is different. Of course. But what sort of tools might you be able to share now with people in terms of how to handle certain challenges like the one you just raised anything that comes to your mind. So no matter what age you are, and I would like to talk about the older population too, no matter what age you are as a caregiver or as a patient, there are very important things to realize. It's very important to take care of yourself. Self-care is number one. How do you take care of yourself? Things like exercise. It doesn't have to be taking a run or doing something like Orange Theory. It means... Doing something like what? Orange Theory, which is it's an intense exercise class. (laughs) Something I will not do. But um, you don't have to do anything intense. But it's getting out and taking a walk. It's doing some light resistance training. It's moving Uh your body, getting those endorphins going. Okay? Uh Eating healthy, eating Uh well, eating three meals a day and some snacks, not skipping meals, socializing. Socialization is very helpful in terms of living longer. Socialization and sleep. Eating well, socialization, and sleep are three of the top things that keep you alive longer. There are Mm -hmm. studies that are showing. And so, you know, a lot of people who isolate become depressed or they're depressed and they isolate. So it's very important to do these things to keep yourself going. If you're not getting sleep, you're having a really difficult time to to really get yourself going, even to be a caregiver in the first place. I tell caregivers, if you don't take care of yourself, you're not going to be a great caregiver. Mm -hmm. So many caregivers hear that, but it's so hard for them to take it to heart. It's so hard. It's very hard. And sometimes it takes the patient saying, get out of here, go do your thing, you know? (laughs) And, And sometimes when I talk to patients alone, I say, you know, what is your significant other or parent or whatever, what are they doing for themselves? What Uh do you think they're doing? And they say, they're not doing anything. They're not getting out of the house. Actually, they're not leaving me alone, Uh you know? And I say, you got to encourage them to do such and such that's helpful to them. So Uh it is really tough. I'm not saying it's easy. And that's where I come in and encourage, you know, different ideas, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing doesn't work necessarily for everybody, Mm -hmm. you know? So that's why you try to access those coping mechanisms that they've used before. Um, The other thing is meditation. You know, people think of meditation as this only certain types of people can do meditation. You just sit there and be quiet and close your eyes and, you know, don't think. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily true. And there's so many different apps on your phone out there and books and 
classes that just focus on mindfulness and and that's really huge and and it's become more popular and I think that that's a great thing because it's really helped people to be centered and calm and uh, keep them really focused on the things that need to be done and and keep them really calm mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. have you seen a difference in the generations the way each generation responds are younger folks more open to some things that older folks are and vice versa in Can- terms of coping yeah in terms of coping and in terms of being open to coping mechanisms. Um, I I just think that younger folks have pressures that older people don't have because of the world we're living in right now. And older folks have pressures that younger people don't have because maybe they're staring down the barrel of mortality, even if not, they're not the sick one. So I just wondered if you see a difference in the way the generations respond to your ideas. Yeah, I think it's actually just how they're dealing with things. The younger generations kind of get it a little bit more. I Mm -hmm. think the older generations, and I think it's because they've been together, like if we're talking husband and wife or Mm -hmm. boyfriend, girlfriend, Mm -hmm. they've been together for so much longer. I mean, you're talking married for 40, 50, 60 years. All they know is being with each other. Right. They don't have like, I mean, they have memories, but they don't really have a memory of being with somebody else or being independent and alone. Right. Well, that's a good point. For people who are alone and going through this, how how do you counsel them? I mean, that's got to be really rough. Probably hard for you to watch, too. And it's terrible. Yeah. Um, and that's where I can tur- encourage them to continue to come see me, uh-huh. to really come to a support group, to engage in, let's say, they have a religious affiliation, to really engage in that those places, you know, whether it's a church or synagogue or mm-hmm. whatever it is that they believe in, to get out there, you know, if they physically are able to do it. You mm-hmm. know, we talked about socialization. Yeah. I mean, that's really huge. If people are reaching out to help, to accept the help because they really need it. And also to talk to them about, okay, in the past when you felt lonely, what have you done? Uh And it's really important, especially when you're older, you have had a past. There's guaranteed to be hard times in your past. You know, Mm -hmm. even young people, they've had hard times in their past and they've gotten through it. So Mm -hmm. let's talk about that and figure out what worked then or what didn't work, you know? And mm-hmm. so, so that's something that, that I've done with people too. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you give suggestions and they don't take it. Mm-hmm. You know, part of my job is not to give advice. And, you know, I've always been told not to give advice, but it's suggestions and it's empowering people to go and do what they think is right for themselves. I do give suggestions and, and it depends on the person. Mm-hmm. You know? Do you have to counsel patients about experimental treatments? Do you talk about that sort of thing? So if patients ask me questions about treatment, this is a big chemo story in the right. news lately. Right, of course. Patients, right? And I've heard that particular right. story, and actually I've gone to meetings that are talking about it, and patients have asked me over the last week these questions. And I, anything that has to do with medications that has to do with chemo or, or any cancer or drugs, even if I know about it, I say, you know, I answer the questions if I know the answer, but I also say, listen, I'm a social worker, I'm not a doctor. Mm-hmm. You know, you gotta go ask your doctor these specific questions. And mm-hmm. you know, they say, oh, I have a side effect from this, but do you think it's from this? And I said, I- I'm not a doctor. You really mm-hmm. have to ask your physician. You know, mm-hmm. I can say, hey, I read that study too. But again, it's really important to talk to your doctor about yeah, these things. Yeah, you have if, to walk a A lot line. of times they'll tell me, oh, I've been dizzy or I-, I fell. I said, well, you gotta go to the emergency room or, you know, go upstairs or your physician's upstairs, right. you know, I'll walk you upstairs uh-huh. kind of thing. So uh-huh. even if I know the answers, I can't answer those questions for them. Uh-huh. How do you think that you've changed over the course of time doing this work? 
Well, we talked about talking to my parents about end of life, right? I think those kind of questions would not have necessarily come up or been so ubiquitous in my mind if I hadn't been. The other thing is, you know, like I said, I'm in my 30s. I am asking for all types of scans and right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and tests and, and all of this because I'm seeing patients in their 20s and 30s, you know, with breast cancer, ovarian cancer, uh, lung cancer, uh, all different types of cancers that you wouldn't expect a young person to have. Yeah. What aspects of your job do you think listeners would find surprising? I mean, misconceptions that people have. Uh, I think a misconception people would have is since I am in my 30s that I can't connect with someone in their 70s, 80s, or 90s. I think one or two times patients have said to me, what would you know about this, right? You know, how would you know about end-of-life discussions when I'm 60 years older than you, right? And then they start talking to me and realizing, okay, well, I work with people every day who have the same issues, and I can connect with you and have compassion, and I have the experience and knowledge to be empathic and to give you some strategies to work through this. And also that... They say, oh, are you married? Do you have kids? Well, you don't understand because you don't have children. Well, that doesn't mean I, don't, I can't relate. You know, just because I don't have children doesn't mean I can't help you through this process, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think going back to, like, let's say elderly patients, you know, I can relate in having grandparents and watching my parents go through that. The elderly patients are worried about their children who are, you know, in their mid-50s, mid-60s. They're worried about, okay, how are they going to deal with burying me these kind of questions how are they going to deal with the grieving of their parent because i've helped them so much over the years right Mm -hmm. all different questions like that you know Mm -hmm. and i I am able to address it and i I think also people are worried that i can't handle it emotionally and i can and i do Uh uh-huh that's a good segue to my next question which is how do you keep it together how do you keep it together emotionally and what do you do for yourself I try to listen to my own suggestions, which is, <laughs> which is self-care, right? Uh-huh. I try to exercise. I eat well. I socialize. My fiancé and I laugh a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, they say laughter is the best medicine, and I've really learned that. Uh-huh. I spend a lot of time with my family. You know, I came down here to spend time with my family, and I'm really doing that. I do my best to leave work at work, and it's very hard to do, but I say when I leave work, I say, Okay, I did the best I could today. I helped as many people as well as I could today. Mm-hmm. And I will come back tomorrow and do the best I can too. Mm-hmm. Do you and ever feel like you're not doing enough? A lot of times I feel that way. But I think many caregivers, and I don't mean just caregivers who are directly. Right, but I mean professionals, right? Yeah. We, we all have those moments where we feel, am I doing enough? Did I save that person's life? Even if you're not a doctor, I mean, there are moments, you know, I have plenty of patients who have passed away, and I said, did I make enough impact on their caregiver's life, right? Mm-hmm. Do they feel like I gave them enough support? Those kind of questions. But I hear from my social circle and my family and my fiancé that even if you touch them for a moment, you made a difference. Mm-hmm. And I keep that in the top of my mind. You know, that's all we can do. Yeah. How has your work influenced your approach to your own care and your future care? You talked about that a little bit before, but is there anything else that you'd like to add? How your work has influenced your own future plans for care? Not that you're going to get cancer. Well, what's interesting is actually more and more and more people are going to get cancer. And some statistic that said one out of two people will have cancer in their life. Oh, my gosh. But it's because, well, it's really high, but at the same time, 
we're living so much longer. And right. as you get older, and right. I'm not a physician, I always right. like to preface every conversation <laughs> I have as that. But as we get older, our cells start to mutate anyway, right? So that's why all these older people are having cancer. So we're living longer. And, you know, there's all these other factors that come into play. So how I'm going to deal with, uh, you know. Yeah, your own future care my needs. My own future care needs. So first of all, the second I get married, we are getting long-term health. You're getting long-term care insurance? Yes. Wow, it's so expensive. Well, if you start early and put, you know, even if you could put a little in, it's, it's better right. than nothing because, you know, you never know. And to plan. Planning, you know, sometimes they say planning takes you nowhere because you never know what's going to happen. Right. But I think planning is important in this realm. I think knowing the things you want for yourself, it may change over time. You may say, oh, you know, and it may change when you get a disease. Some mm -hmm. people may say that's not what I want because now that I'm sick, I mm -hmm. want something else. Keeping the discussion open and honest, you know, I have patients sometimes, I had one now, the, the wife is dying of pancreatic cancer and she's going into hospice. And the husband told me a few weeks ago when I said, you know, what kind of end of life discussions have you had? And he said, you know, they've been married 50 years. What are you talking about? And I said, well, you're thinking about hospice. Have mm. you talked about, does she want burial? Does she want cremation? Like these kind of discussions. Mm. And it is really hard to have these oh, discussions. God, I can imagine. And it's hard, it's hard for me to watch the reaction when I bring it up. Yeah. But it's also who else is going to bring it up. And so that's my role too. And he said, it, it's too hard to bring up. Mm. So if you're not bringing it up now, and I said, do you want, her to pass and then you to say, I don't know what she wanted. And so if you're looking back, it's more important that you really have that discussion now. Mm -hmm. And so for me and how I would do it, the reason why it's having that discussion early on or having ongoing discussions so that it's not like shocking at the end of life, whenever that will be. Given that this work is so demanding, what do you do to seek balance in your life? Well, like I said, when when I'm at work, I focus on work, I focus on patients, I focus on doing support groups and really finding ways to bring resources to the patients that I have or finding new resources for new patients or whatever I can do on that end. And then I say, work is over, I'm going home and I'm doing the things that I need to do for myself, whether it's relaxing and watching TV and distracting myself or spending time with family and friends, um, exercising, uh, having a good meal, walking my dog, you know, anything that I can do to calm and to, I wouldn't say distracting as much as it's doing something else besides focusing on the sadness or the pain, you know, that other people are feeling. Yeah. You know, if we take on everybody's pain, we're not going to make it. Stress is a big factor at least I notice I'm not looking at studies, but stress, <laughs> I'm not a doctor. <laughs> I'm looking at, you know, stress is a huge factor in illness, right? Mm -hmm. That whole mind over body thing. Forget mm -hmm. can't, it's not about cancer, but any illness, mm -hmm. right? We've, when we're stressed, we can have a stomach ache or a headache. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's very important for me to try to keep my stress level low. That doesn't mean I don't have stress, but if I can mitigate that in some capacity mm -hmm. um, and not really take this work home with me mm -hmm. as often as I would if I didn't do this self-care. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What sort of work are you doing outside of the hospital? It's not outside. I mean, it's part of the community work I do. Okay. Um, and actually, I run a support group, a caregiver support group at a local country club. They uh -huh. asked me to do a presentation there, and it was well-received. 
And they asked me to come back and, and lead a support group. So I do that once a month for like 45 minutes. The caregivers are enjoying it. And what's good is that most of them, and it's a more um, affluent community, most of them do have someone at home to take care of the patients mm-hmm. so that they can get out for 45 minutes. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are not able to do that. And you know, running a caregiver group at the hospital is very tough because mm-hmm. people are not able to get out of the house. And that segues into something that I did want to mention in terms of caregivers taking care of themselves, right? Mm -hmm. So they're often not doing that because they're busy at home or scared to leave their significant other, whether they're scared that they're going to fall or they're just fearful of them dying when they're not there or they just emotionally do not want to leave them alone. Mm -hmm. And I see this more in people who are older, people who have been married 40, 50, 60 years. What happens is when someone gets sick, They're already connected to each other for so long. They're together all the time anyway. You Mm -hmm. know, they go on double dates and they've spent so much time together for so long, 50, 60 years, you know, you're connected at the hip either way. Mm -hmm. And then one of you gets sick or both of you get sick and your life is surrounding each other. You're going to doctor's appointments together. You're taking care of each other at home. You know, maybe you're going food shopping together, you're doing all these things. And so your life is really surrounded around each other. Mm -hmm. And so when that happens, and one person passes, it becomes really, really challenging. And that's where I get very worried about people, because then they start isolating, and they're confused what to do. They're in a house where it's empty, it's Mm -hmm. really empty. Mm -hmm. And their new routine the last however many years is now really screwed up. And so it becomes um, very tough. So these are the things that I deal with on a daily basis with people. Mm -hmm. So are there any resources that you want to suggest for people? I mean, I think it depends on what stage you're at. And I don't mean cancer stage, but I mean as a caregiver or as a patient. I think the best thing is, and maybe I'm biased because I'm a social worker, but if you are at a cancer center or in a hospital-based place, ask for a social worker. Ask to see what they can do. There are also nurse navigators at most hospitals, and the Mm -hmm. nurse navigators do very similar things in terms of extra support. There are plenty of resources out there for different things like acupuncture or meditation or yoga exercise, all of these things beyond medical care, like I'm talking about, can really help holistically for people who are dealing with this. Mm -hmm. And they're the same things that can help caregivers. You know, so there's so many things that can help both the patient and the caregiver. Do you find that folks who are like a lot older don't really know how to I mean, a lot of people are really internet savvy, and Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that people in their 80s aren't internet savvy, Mm -hmm. but for people who are so isolated and Mm -hmm. they're senior seniors, Mm -hmm. how do they find support? Where can they find support? I say this for folks who are listening who might have parents that Mm -hmm. live far away. Mm -hmm. You know, what can they say to their parents who are living far away, who find themselves in the position that you've just described, where they're all alone in this big house, they're at home, and their kids can't get to them. They can't get there to help them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you say to those adult children to help them with their parents? So I have a situation like that right now. And it is very tough because encouraging people who are still with it mentally to downsize from a big house to go into an assisted living facility or a nursing home can be very tough. People get stubborn. 
they still feel like they have independence, even though they can't take care of themselves the way that, you know, you and I can take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. So it Mm -hmm. really takes a lot of family discussions. And maybe they need a social worker or someone like myself to really mitigate and facilitate those discussions. So Mm -hmm. that's number Mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. When it comes to resources, that's very tough. As your podcast is about, it's really hard to address that population. And I think it also is about finding there are organizations that do have companions. And a lot of them you do have to pay out of pocket, you know. Uh-huh. So a lot of these things cost money. And unfortunately, that's the nature of the game here. And so, you know, having a companion and if you have a companion, someone that can drive, you know, can take them to different things if they're able to still play cards or there's adult daycare. It keeps them going mentally. You yeah. know, whatever you can do, whether it's crossword puzzles or playing cards or coloring, anything that can keep the mind going can really help. And like I said, socialization is huge. Mm-hmm. But when someone's really isolating for so long, they... They don't even remember how to socialize, yeah, right? Yeah. And so this is really tough. I mean, yeah. there's not a specific resource that I have except for come see me. But uh-huh. person, see, see someone like you. Right. Yeah. I agree. See someone yeah. like me. And yeah. so, you know, if there's they're listening in a different state or even a different country, find the most local hospital or depending on what type of disease or issue they're dealing with, a, a local resource center. There are a lot of resource centers around and you can find a, a local social worker mm-hmm. or case manager. Okay. I want to ask if there is anything else that you would like to discuss that we didn't get to or if you have any last thoughts. Well, I would just say that it's very important, whether you're a caregiver or a patient, to have compassion for yourself as well as the compassion for each other. Compassion goes a long way and being a caregiver to understand what the person you're caregiving for is going through and the opposite way because being a patient you can accept what you're going through but the person who's caregiving for you is dealing with their own stuff as well as yours Mm -hmm. and so again having compassion for yourself and for others is very important when you're going through these things. We've been speaking with Jennifer Schussheim. She's a licensed clinical social worker, oncology social worker. She supports cancer patients and their caregivers here in South Florida. And Jennifer, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you like this show, if you're getting something out of it, I want you to tell your friends about it because I want everyone to know you're not alone. Your stories matter and your voices have power. So share this with your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panarias. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.